and you're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business. And I'm your host, Ramin Shah. Today's guest is Andrew D'Souza, founder and CEO of ClearBank. For an industry that's made its mark on funding disruption, venture capital hasn't really changed over the past 30 years. Andrew's determined to change that. He's raised over $300 million to prove out that businesses have better options than using equity or debt. ClearBank's creating a new asset class that's best suited to fund the repeatable portions of your business. To date, the company's founded thousands of entrepreneurs, and it's having significant impact on the overarching funding conversation. This one was fun. In addition to the capital stack, we talked all things startup operations. We talked pivots, hiring, building in Toronto versus Silicon Valley, unique operating practices, and why the company's culture is best described as a mix of Lululemon and Bridgewater. Andrew, it's really great to have you on today. Let's dive in. You know, Andrew, it's really great to have you on today, and I want to dive pretty deeply into ClearBank and get your perspectives on building a new asset class and and really a bunch of operational lessons from founding and scaling a high-growth company. But, you know, before we dive in, tell me a little bit more about your background and and the journey to founding ClearBank. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, prior to ClearBank, I started my career. I'm an engineer from the University of Waterloo. My family moved to Canada from India via Chicago when I was a kid, but um, grew up just outside of Toronto and uh, studied engineering at the University of Waterloo and uh, graduated and worked for McKinsey in the Toronto office for uh, for a couple of years and sort of split my time between media, retail, and financial services. Um, and interestingly enough, we're sort of recombining all of those industries back uh, as we've been building ClearBank and, and the disruption happening there. But after a couple of years, realized I wasn't going to be a lifetime consultant and I, I didn't really want to go work for any of our clients. And so moved out to Silicon Valley and built a couple of tech companies. The first one was actually with a guy named Chamath, who was head of growth at Facebook at the time. He's a fellow Canadian, fellow Waterloo alum. Um, and he was just leaving to go start uh, uh, Social Capital, his venture firm. And so I joined uh, to lead sales marketing biz dev for a company called Top Prospect, one of the first investments that he was making. Um, it was a recruiting platform on top of LinkedIn and Facebook and uh, just as those APIs were coming out. And um, it was exciting because we were one of the first, you know, just as one of the first seed deals out of Avengerson Horowitz, um, you know, we had Spark Capital, we had Ron Conway, we had Jeff Clavier, we had a great, great group of investors. Um, and a lot of the partners that we work with now at ClearBank are actually, uh, we're actually early top prospect clients. So it was, a, it was sort of a um, baptism by fire introduction into into Silicon Valley as a Canadian with no real network, I uh, got a chance to just sort of throw myself in, get to know a lot of the high growth startups and investors uh, who were, who were, you know, investing back in 2010 as, as money was coming back in the ecosystem. Um, from there, started to do some work with the Khan Academy. Um, you know, I was, I was, uh, I was always interested in education technology. My, uh, my mom was a teacher, my grandfather was a teacher and I saw, started to see the impact they were having and thought about starting a company in the space. Um, met a, uh, a team, a Canadian team, actually building a company called Top Hat, which was putting mobile phones in university classrooms uh, to help students participate at scale. And joined them as their first COO, um, you know, led the sales and marketing efforts, grew them to just over 100 people. And the other part of my job was, uh, was to raise, uh, raise venture capital, so it was based in the Bay Area. Um, so did that, uh, raised a couple rounds of funding, um, just over $20 million in total, and then uh, moved back to Toronto with them um, to continue to scale the company. And while I was here, uh, got recruited after being here for a little while, got recruited to do the same thing at a hardware wearable tech, tech company called Nimi. And uh, we had, we were creating a 
uh, a device that knew who you were based on your heartbeat. So your heartbeat is a kind of a unique biometric signature um, and knew who you were. And then you could do things like payments and password manager and a similar role it was sort of join the company, raise funding, and then build out the go-to-market. And so, you know, I think what I realized after doing this, you know, a few times was, um, you know, my job was to basically every 12 to 18 months, get on a bunch of planes, you know, fly to Silicon Valley and, uh, and pitch a bunch of investors and, you know, take 100 meetings and get 97 no's and try and get a handful of term sheets and, and raise capital. And that would take three months sort of end to end or more. Um, and I think I realized that, one, the only reason I could do it was because I had spent some time in, in Silicon Valley and most other founders uh, who didn't have those networks couldn't even get their foot in the door. Um, and then once you get your foot in the door, you basically have to, it's basically a full-time job for several months. And, and many companies you know, can't afford their founder to take that kind of time off, um, off running the business. And then the third thing is, you know, equity is a pretty expensive way to, to capitalize your business. And so it makes sense when you're funding, you know, R&D and long-term investments and, and things with a lot of uncertainty. But once you've figured out, you know, your business model and you're, you're investing in sales and marketing with a repeatable, you know, repeatable growth rate, um, it starts to feel expensive, both from a time and cost of capital. You know, every VC is looking for a 10x on their investment um, and control perspective. You got to take on a board. You know, you got somebody now that's that's sort of telling you how to run your business. Um, I've certainly seen the other side of that, where investors have you know almost blown up companies and fired management teams and um, and really you know uh, made life difficult for the founder. So, you know, a big part of my motivation is you know how do we help more founders win globally um, without having to go through some of that pain, and and how can we sort of flip the uh, flip that balance of power that's existed for. Um, for generations around, um, you know, the investors and the entrepreneurs. And so tell us, you know, tell us what ClearBank does, right? At a high level, you know, the framing you laid out is it's basically a way to fund your business. And you, you guys run by, you know, catchphrase of no equity, no dilution, no bullshit, right? So what is ClearBank specifically? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the way, the simplest way to think about it is we are, we are growth capital. Um, we are fast, affordable growth capital, Right. Um, we try and take all of the work out of raising capital uh, away so that you can do it on a monthly or weekly basis. So we uh, we connect, you know, you connect your online accounts. We make a decision in minutes. Uh, we can have you funded instantly. And you don't need to think about how much money you need, you know, for 18 months because you can do this every month or every week. You can just say, look, here's how much capital I need to fund my marketing budget for the next month. Um, we structure it as a rev share. Which is why, and, and, and with a flat fee. So we basically say, look, we'll give you $100,000 to spend on growth. Um, we will take 5% of sales, but we get 106 back. And that is a typical deal structure. And there's, no, there's nothing else associated with it. There's no, we're not taking security in your business. We're not taking warrants. We're not taking equity. Um, you know, there's no compounding. You know, if, that, if it takes you six months or 12 months or 24 months or, or three months to, you know, for, your, for, your rev, for that 5% of revenue to hit that 106, uh, we're in it through the ups and downs. And I think that's the, you know, as we think about what makes something affordable, um, we make sure that we structure it so that one, you know, it's only 6%. We're not taking a 10 X. We're taking 1.06 of, of what we've given you. And, um, and it varies with your daily sales. So, you know, as long as your margins support that 5%, you will always be able to afford it. Um, you may not be able to, and, and you can probably get a lower rate than that if you go and take a second mortgage in your house or if you go and put secure, you know, give up security and a lien on your business and your IP. Um, but the question is, 
you know, can you afford to lose your house if your business fails or slows down? Can you afford to lose your business if your revenue slows down and you miss a payment um, and, and your bank, you know, shuts off your accounts? Um, you know, can you afford to spend the amount of time that it takes to, to go and raise capital? Can you afford to give up equity and give up ownership and control of your company? And so, you know, I think that's the, you know, we're not, we're not, not going to be the cheapest because you can always go and, you know, again, you know, put your, you take a personal guarantee or, um, or give up security and, and, and give a bunch of guarantees to, uh, to a bank who's going to give you a lower rate. Um, but the real question is, can you afford to do all of those things? Because, you know, if your business was a sure bet, um, you know, pe people would be taking those second mortgages on their house and they would be, uh, you know, they would be asking their grandmother to cash in their pension to, to fund their business. But, but nobody really wants to do that. Right. I think a lot of people, they want a partner and they want, uh, they want somebody who's going to take on that risk and share that risk with them. And we think we can do that. Um, in the most painless and most efficient way. Uh, and so talk about the idea of kind of sharing risk and, and revenue-based financing a little bit more, right? I, you know, I've, I've seen it certainly in the tech community, which is, you know, the skepticism, uh, you know, from one camp um, that, you know, hey, this is, this is a great concept, but it's, it's kind of clever packaging and marketing lingo for debt, right? It, it feels like debt, looks like debt. Uh, and I'm sure you've certainly faced that skepticism, obviously in day-to-day -day operations, but in, in fundraising and such as well. But you were you were framing out some of the nuances in which, uh, you know, I, I think you were getting to why this is not debt. Talk a little bit more about that and why this is truly a new asset class. Yeah, yeah. So let me start with sort of the the, the spectrum of, of capital that has existed today, right? So on, you've got equity on one end of the spectrum, which is you give up owner, ownership of your company um, in exchange for for capital that you know when you exit your company they own some shares, and as you as you build the company they've got some control. Those are that's great for things where you are funding long term, you know, you're investing in R&D, you're investing in sort of long term, um, you know, product development and things that you have an uncertainty around payoff. Um, debt on the other side of the spectrum has always been used uh, to fund assets, to unlock liquidity from illiquid assets, right? Equipment, property, IP. You have things that you could always liquidate to cover the debt um, and and so that is that is the you know debt is designed to mitigate risk based on the asset value that it's backing, um, and uh, and maybe that asset is you know your reputation, your personal guarantee. But there is something there that the debt holders are are climbing onto, and if you miss a payment, they will go after that. Um, we are we are in between. We are funding repeatable growth. Uh, the companies that we fund may not have many assets and we don't really care. Uh, we don't take security in the assets. If things go south, we don't come after anything. There is, there is nothing. All we have is uh, a right to future, a future revenue stream until we get paid back. Um, and so the structure, you know, legally, right, we are, we're not taking security over any sort of assets and we're not taking a lien on any part of the business. Um, and then, and then practically the way we're getting paid back, there's no, fixed payment dates, there's no maturity. Um, we're, we're literally taking a percentage of your sales as they come in uh, to, get our, to get our repayment. Um, and so it's no different than you know, a payment processor that's taking 3% or 5% of sales. Uh, we just do that as a, as a way to get our capital back. And so you know, the way that people should use our capital also uh, is also a little bit different. It, it makes sense to use our capital to fund repeatable growth um, when your existing cash flows don't cover that you're growing faster than your cash flows can cover. So you know that a dollar spent today will, 
will yield, you know, between two and four dollars over the next 12 months. Um, and you are not generating enough free cash flow in your business to cover the growth that you want to see. So if you want to grow, um, we are going to be the most efficient way to grow because you probably don't have enough assets to, to raise, uh, to raise, you know, meaningful debt, or you, you may not want to take on the risk of debt because it, you know, you, the debt holders then control you and you, and you are likely then funding that with equity. And we think we're, we're a better, uh, alternative to funding. That and so talk about, equity. talk about that optimal, optimal capital mix a little bit more, right? Obviously it's going to, it's going to sway for different types of businesses. Um, how do you think about what the right composition of capital allocation, capital mix, right? Capital stack rather is for businesses, right? What are the factors? What are the characteristics that sway your opinion on which portions of the capital stack to rely on more, whether it's equity, it's debt, you know, it's, it's clear bank. How do you, how do you think about that? Yeah. So I think it comes down to sort of time horizon and certainty, right? Um, and so for the, for the founder, um, in one way, right, equity is the lowest risk because you're basically selling part of your company, you're bringing on a partner. Um, and so they're, they're in it with you. Um, you know, there's risk associated with it because, you know, they could tell you how to run the business. They have some level of control, but financially, you know, if your business goes south or it slows down, you know, they're in it with you. They're in it, you know, for the long haul. So it makes sense for things with a lot of uncertainty, right? I'm investing, I'm, I'm trying to develop a cure for cancer. I'm, you know, I have to, I have to hire a hundred engineers before I know if the product is going to work, uh, or if anybody's going to want it, I'm testing a new channel, um, and a new product. And I have no idea if, if anybody's going to want it at the price that I need to sell it at. That is, a, that is, that is the right use. And it's a great use of equity. Um, and if you have the right equity investors, they can be great partners through that phase. Uh, and every company goes through phases where they're launching a new product, launching a new channel, and they should probably fund that, that expansion and that experiment with equity. Um, debt on the other hand is kind of the highest risk for the, for the entrepreneur, because, uh, again, it is, you are taking on an obligation to repay. And if you don't, you lose your company. Um, and so it only really makes sense when you have assets, uh, that you are, you're comfortable selling, um, to, to cover that debt, uh, and cover the cost of capital. And those assets are producing enough revenue, um, or producing enough yield, uh, to cover the, the interest expense around the debt. Um, but debt can be, you know, you can take a mortgage on something and it can be a longer, you know, long-term horizon as well. And, and uh, even in venture debt, it's usually two to three years, and, um, you know, absolute cost ends up being expensive. Um, but if you need capital out for several years, then, then, then it can be a good, uh, it can be a good, good solution. And then what we do is we say we will fund the repeatable growth part of your business. So if you have things that are highly correlated to revenue, sales, marketing, you know, and e-commerce shipping, um, you know, infrastructure, things, things where, you know, if you drew a, uh, if you drew a correlation, they would be uh, highly correlated to top line revenue um, and where the payback period is typically less than a year, right? So I acquire a customer and that customer, you know, turns into a unit economic profitable customer in less than a year. We, we're a really good solution to that. Um, and that's really where we fit in. And, you know, frankly, I think a lot of companies, uh, that's where the majority of their spend, once they've figured out product market fit, the majority of their spend is actually in funding repeatable growth that is highly correlated to revenue. Um, and so that's where we think that there's the opportunity to sort of create this new asset class that, that may be actually quite big, um, bigger than, than most people. So you know, I want to talk about that, right? Kind of the, the bigger than most people originally thought, because I, I think there is a nugget there, right? Which is 
what are the implications of this new asset class really for the future of fundraising and capital and not even just venture capital, right? Because if I take a step back, right, today I imagine there are certainly situations in which, you know, there's widespread cooperation, VCC deals don't necessarily make sense for them and, and they can refer them and clear bank and fund those businesses, right? But from a long-term perspective, mm -hmm. this is, you know, it's classic innovator's dilemma, right? You guys are developing an underlying platform and methodology that can really actually disrupt venture capital, right? You'll continue to climb up the stack. And it's, it's interesting in its own right, because, you know, when you think about venture and, and VC firms, venture is obviously capital to fund disruptors, but venture and venture capital itself has not really been disrupted and has not really changed all that much, you know, over the last 20, 30 years. So how, how do you think about it from a more macro perspective? Yeah, so I think it's been interesting because we've started to see these mega funds uh, come out because of the structure of, you know, there's a whole bunch of reasons, but but one reason is structure of public markets and, and being able to access these companies. You know, companies are staying private longer and they're de-risked as they get larger. Um, and some companies get de-risked very early, um, but venture capital has always or, or started out as risk capital, right? And the idea is equity capital is, is true risk capital and, and risk sharing capital, and you get paid for that risk with equity like returns. Um, what's happening now is people want to get access to these de-risk de companies and fund their growth, but, uh, but they can't get access to them in the, in the public markets. And so we're investing into soft banks and sequoias and you know, these massive uh, growth funds. Um, but what they're really funding is repeatable, scalable growth. And they're allowing people to grow faster than their cash flows would, would otherwise allow uh, without a lot of assets. And so, you know, this may be controversial, but I actually think that the asset class that we're funding around revenue sharing growth capital uh, is potentially larger than equity capital uh, because equity capital is really used to fund. And if you break down the P&L of a company and you figure out which line items are are uh, should be funded with equity. It's the experimental line items. It's R and D and product development. It's you know new experiments and new channels, um, new market entry. But once you're in sort of scale up and growth mode, um, you know, and that may happen when you're doing 100k in revenue, right? You know, you may have already figured it out. You may not be investing in any more more uh, more R and D. Um, equity is you know probably not the right solution for you um, because if you keep doing that, you end up you know, owning none of your company by the time you exit. Um, and so I think that is, you know, there's a chance that this entire asset class becomes bigger than, you know, the soft banks and the sequoias and the entire sort of venture ecosystem and, and venture capital sort of shifts back to being true risk capital where you're really investing in things that move humanity forward. And you're really investing in that R and D phase of the company. And you're a, you're a true risk partner. Um, and frankly, I mean, I think the good VCs, and we've, we've raised venture capital, is what we think is a lot of the investment is, is trying to create this new asset class and trying to, you know, we're investing in data science and product development. Um, we're investing in new markets and new verticals. And the VCs that partner with us get it, right? They got, it into, they got into venture capital for the reason that they want, to, they want to invest in things that are moving humanity forward. They don't want their money being used to fund Facebook ads and sales commissions and, you know, things that are, that are pretty mundane. And... Uh, and I think that's where there could be, a, you know, there already is. We are, you know, for, for venture-backed companies, we are a non-dilutive co-investor um, who funds the repeatable parts of their P&L, while the venture capital is the risk capital that funds the disruptive parts of their, of their, of their business model. 
Um, and so I think there is a way for it to coexist, but I think that, you know, maybe venture capital is going to get, you know, right-sized um, as, you know, new, new financing alternatives emerge for these, these growing companies. Yeah, that's an interesting way to frame it, right? The right-sizing piece or kind of venture capital being uh, allocated back to what kind of the original intent or what the true kind of purpose of, of that type of equity capital is. I'm curious when you think about the ecosystem at large, right, which is, you guys are working, obviously, on developing this new inter- this new asset class that sits, you know, between equity, debt, kind of somewhere on on the capital range. Do you see uh, do you see more clear banks coming up in the future, right? A la, you know, the collection of VC firms. Obviously, there's not one VC firm, right? There's not one PE firm. How do you think about that? Yeah, I I hope so. Um, I think I think it would be great if if you know, like it's hard to be the only player in a new asset class, um, <laughs> and so. So we've been doing a lot of education around both on the capital market side and on the customer side um, and on the partner side around what we're doing and why it's different. And, um, you know, I hope that there are others that, that get what we're doing and, and get behind it. So, um, so I, you know, and we've been talking to, there are, there are some interesting firms that are, that are launching or have launched. We know the NDVC folks really well, and they're taking, you know, a lot of folks that have been, VCs and have taken sort of that expertise and craft and are realizing that not every company and not every business model and not every dollar needs to be exactly that black and white, you know, 10x billion dollar outcome or, uh, or bust. Um, and so they're taking the good parts about VC and, and shifting it to provide more flexibility to the founders. And, I, you know, I love that. Right? I think every time there's something that's new and disruptive, that's you know, new alternative introduced into the market. The incumbents need to react. And at the very least, the fact that we exist puts more power in, in founders' hands when they go and negotiate with uh, their VC and their banks. Uh, and so the more that that happens, you know, our mission is just to help more founders win, right, and, and shift this balance of power. Um, and so if we can do that, uh, even if we don't work with every company and even if, you know, we create an industry with a bunch of competitors, um, you know, we feel, like, we feel like we'll achieve on that mission. So um, I hope so, and I don't know exactly what form they'll take. Um, we don't look very much like a VC firm because, you know, half of our company are data scientists and half of our company are, are you know, salespeople, basically. Um, so uh, we don't exactly look and we're not built like a VC firm. But uh, so I'd be surprised if a VC sort of, you know, was able to pivot exactly into this. But there's probably some technology and product companies that. Um, that have access to capital that uh, that would end up doing something similar. Yeah, I mean, what comes to mind are, are the Amazons, the cabbages, et cetera, of the world, right? That are at a fundamental set saying either how do we have uh, in-baked access to data, right? Whether it's e-commerce data, merchant data, whatever it might be, the stripes, right? Et cetera, of the world. Um, or it's, it's, you know, companies that are saying, you know, we can, you know, facilitate loan terms or whatever it might be, you know, equity raises, et cetera significantly more quickly than your traditional methods because we look at different data points, right? So I, I, I agree with that yeah. logic, which is I, I, I think it's difficult or challenging to see a world in which pure play venture firm, firms start to transition into this. I would imagine it would be more so, you know, the Amazon, the AWSs, right? The Azures, the, the folks that are basically owning the infrastructure of the internet or the infrastructure upon which these companies run, which are fundamentally the sources of data by which you can make these decisions for financing, right? Yeah, yeah, it's, it, I, I think that's right. Um, but I, the other interesting thing though is, uh, you know, just the data, I, for, for one reason or another, I think um, companies don't 
the, the companies that work with us work with us because they feel like they do have a partner, right? And it's not the same as like a board member and an investor, but it's not like one click onto my AWS account to get money. Um, and so that's been the interesting thing for us is we actually are developing a relationship that is not unlike an investor or not unlike a VC, um, where we're actually you know, very invested in their success and we are pulling together resources and insights. Um, and every person that we fund has a one-to-one -one relationship with a growth advisor and somebody on our team that is looking out for them uh, and paying attention to their success. And you know, if you, live in, if you live in Silicon Valley, you probably have a, a network of people who are looking out for you. But if you live in you know, Atlanta or if you live in Ohio, um, and you're an entrepreneur, you may not have that many people that are in your corner. Um, and so that's been the interesting thing is we sort of look and feel, um, you know, while behind the scenes, it probably looks like an AWS or Stripe where it's like, you know, all this, you know, all the decisioning is happening just based on data. The front end of our company looks and feels like a, you know, it looks like a VC firm where every associate can make a decision in 20 minutes, right. Uh, on the first meeting. And so it, uh, they're still sort of on your team. So um, it's this sort of interesting DNA um, that, that seems to be working well. Uh, and so talk, talk a little bit more about the business model focus for ClearBank, right? Today, from my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, the focus is primarily D2C and, and online retailers. And you talked about it a little bit, but I'm, I'm curious for you to, to go a little bit deeper on what makes these segments particularly the right fit for ClearBank. And then ultimately, I'm also curious how you think about the application of ClearBank to different business models, right? B2B SaaS, marketplace businesses, so on and so forth. Yeah, so, so what we're really looking for is for, our, for us to be able to make a decision very quickly, um, we need to have companies whose, our underlying customers need to have a relatively straightforward you know, business model where the data is easily accessible. So D2C companies, you know, they're all operating online. They all have the same set of five different payment processors and e-commerce platforms. They're all acquiring their customers through a similar set of channels. Um, and so, and they, that sort of CAC to LTV payback period model um, works well. And so the data sources are robust, large, diverse, uh, or, you know, robust, large, and, and defined, um, and uh, and accessible and uh, and the business models are comparable and so we can we can very quickly now determine what makes a you know successful healthy D2C company versus one that that needs needs some work before it can scale um, and we can do that you know using data and so so that you know that's one of the factors and there's a lot of those companies and it's growing uh, growing ecosystem and and where they can deploy capital efficiently to scale once they've hit sort of a certain um, level of definition around their business model, you know that you can put in another dollar and it's going to generate more than a dollar out. Uh, and until that plateaus and you saturate those channels, you can just keep doing that. Um, so we see that, but, but thinking about it more broadly, you know, there are a lot of different business models uh, where they figure that out and you can deploy an extra dollar and you can get an extra customer and that customer will pay you back over a defined period of time. Um, so B2B SaaS, you know, so, you know, consumer apps is one that, that was pretty easy for us to launch. And um, we're already supporting, you know, the, the you know, online subscription apps and, and uh, um, like e-commerce or online payment uh, in-app purchase type, type apps. Um, B2B SaaS is another one where you're paying for sales reps, marketing, inventory or um, in, uh, infrastructure. And... We can fund we can fund all of that, um, and we're just starting to test that. But as we start to think about it, if, you know, as long as there's a class of companies 
um, that is able to spend money in repeatable ways uh, and that data is available in a structured way, uh, we think we can we can uh, we can build a model around it and fund it. And so, um, you know, SaaS is probably the next one that we're going to start to explore. Um, marketplaces are interesting where, you know, many of them, uh, you know, at the early stages of marketplaces are probably a good equity bet uh, because it's not certain, you know, they are not unit economic positive until they flip. Um, and so that's where, you know, until you get to the point of enough marketplace liquidity, you know, you probably do need to raise equity. Once you have enough liquidity and once your unit economics are positive and you want to accelerate growth, uh, we can step in and help help to, to, to fund some of that, um, you know, driving increased liquidity in that marketplace. Um, and so we're starting to figure that out and, and figure out if, if um, you know, the data sources are as available. But, uh, but yeah, we think that there's, you know, uh, we want to create sort of this generic model where if you're an online business and you're acquiring customers online and you're generating payments online, um, and it is a, you know, you, we can plug into those data sources. We should be able to build a model. What have been the biggest learnings for you from, from all the data, all the customer data, right? The data of the businesses that you guys have seen, you funded, you haven't funded, right? What have been the biggest learnings from that? I imagine there have been, there have to have been some sort of interesting insights, either for implications on diversity, funding distribution, so on and so forth. What, what have you, what are the kind of top level of you synthesized it? What are the things that you've gleaned? Um, yeah. So, so, you know, I think, one of the most interesting things, and this is probably not that, uh, it was probably obvious in hindsight, but there are uh, great founders and great entrepreneurs everywhere, right? And so uh, the, the interesting thing is, you know, we read this Bloomberg article uh, earlier this year, late last year, where 80% of venture capital went to four states, right? Um, and nine states in America got no, no VC investment, um, which is, you know, which is kind of crazy uh, because I'm sure there are entrepreneurs in those states uh, who are building businesses that are deserving of some sort of capital. Um, but, you know, the interesting thing is even in the, in the first six months of this year, we've funded entrepreneurs in 40, 43 states. Uh, and so we will probably fund, you know, founders across the 50 states in just this year alone um, as, we, as we grow. So I think if you can remove some of the barriers, uh, the other thing is we've funded I think it was like six times as many women as, as the venture industry does, uh, women-founded businesses. Um, so if you can remove some of the barriers that are associated with, you know, where do you live? How far do you have to travel? Or does the investor have to travel to go and fund you? Um, what do you look like? Where did you go to school? Who do you know? And we just look at the fundamentals of your business. And do you have a product who cost, that, that customers want? And can you find those customers efficiently? Um, and you, you, you know, abstract away everything else, all the subjectivity around it, around pattern recognition. And, you know, was this a Stanford dropout with, you know, the certain parents that looks like Zuckerberg or whatever, um, then, then you actually end up funding a lot of great, great entrepreneurs. Um, and we think that's true globally. Um, you know, we, uh, so one of the other big surprises has been the, the number of inbound we've had from, you know, founders in Asia and Europe and Latin America and Africa um, who are like, hey, this is great. Like, I've been running this business and my customers love my product and I just need to buy more inventory and I need to spend more on marketing and I want to grow faster and I want to quit my job and I want to start, you know, I want to feed my family. And, um, and there's no VCs, there's no investors, right? Um, and so like places like India where, you know, a venture capital investment comes with a personal guarantee. 
Um, and so, you know, the, the risk associated with that and the barrier for somebody to be able to go and start a business is much higher. Um, and so I think it's, it's fascinating to see when you rethink the, uh, the traditional way that capital is allocated and the structures under which those are, those are allocated, what you can unlock uh, from a sort of entrepreneurial energy and creativity perspective. And, and we're just scratching the surface of that. Um, but that's really what, what, you know, what gets me and, and our team super excited for, for the coming year. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about, you know, some of the operating lessons you've, you've had through this journey, right? And, and there's been a, there's a lot of interesting ones. We'll talk a little bit more about some of the early pivots you guys went through, because um, it's, 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 it's fascinating. And it, I think it also spells, I'm sure, a lot of good lessons on finding product market fit. But let's, let's first kick off with talking about building, you know, in Toronto versus Silicon Valley. Tell me a little bit more about how that experience has been and, you know, what have, what have some of the pros and cons been? Yeah. Yeah. So I've spent uh, half of my career in Silicon Valley and I still, I'm still probably there once a month or so. Uh, we actually started ClearBank. We went through the YC fellowship uh, in, in Silicon Valley in, in 2015. Uh, and we made the active choice to move back to Toronto, uh, partly because Michelle, uh, my co-founder and I both had networks and reputations here. Uh, she's on the Shark Tank of Canada. It's called called Dragons Den here. And so, um, from a recruiting perspective, we already had a bit of a recruiting brand. Um, but uh, and and so we were able to get great talent here. But I think the interesting thing is um, the the type of talent, the diversity that we that is is available in Toronto. I don't think is available anywhere else in the world. Um, Toronto is you know most of our team you know has either not been born in Canada or North America or not uh, or their parents weren't. Um, which means we're trying to build a global company. We have people that that fundamentally understand um, both, you know, local cultures as we as we start to think about you know global expansion, but also just understand the struggles that that, that founders face. And we'll talk a little bit. Um, you know, maybe maybe we'll get a chance. I'll talk a little bit about our company culture and the type of people that we hire. Um, but uh, but I think what's interesting is we have this empathy for founders that is weaved through the organization just because of the type of people. Uh, you know, that, that we hire and the type of people that are available in this talent ecosystem. And we haven't done any sort of like diversity work or whatever, but, you know, our company just reflects the diversity of the city. Um, and it's led to, I think, a really strong, uh, strong culture. And then I think the other thing is um, we don't have the, um, there's, there's like this, this loyalty versus mercenary, you know, approach. And I, I talked to my, my, uh, my colleagues and counterparts in, in Silicon Valley and, it's almost impossible for them to retain, like they would not be able to, to build the caliber of team and retain those people uh, in Silicon Valley because people are sort of just looking for the next thing. And if you're not, um, you know, if you're not the next rocket ship and as you start, start, start to stumble, um, you know, your best people will, will be out looking for another job. Or if you have a hard conversation with somebody and you're like, look, you know, we love you, but you need to improve in these areas. You know, that afternoon they're shooting up resumes. Like, like I think, um, I, you know, it would be really hard to be a manager where you're on pins and needles the entire time and you can't actually tell people how you feel about them and, and where they need to improve uh, because you're worried that they're just going to bolt. Um, we don't have that, right? We, we, we care about our people and we care about their success. And the, because we care about them, we, we tell them uh, and we tell them when they're doing a great job and we tell them when they're, when they're screwing up. Um, and we're not worried about it um, because, you know, people, people are here for the right reasons and they've got, you know, I guess maybe a bit of a thicker skin around it. Um, but uh, but it's one of these things where we you know you can develop this culture of loyalty, and if people are bought into the mission, 
we can be a lot more transparent about the ups and downs and, and enroll everybody else in, in helping to solve them rather than, you know, me having to be a leader standing up at the, at the front of the room saying everything's rosy and we're all going to be okay uh, when you're sort of like grinning and flying into the burning sun, right? Um, and so uh, I, think, I think we can uniquely do that in Toronto um, where, where it would be much harder to do it in Silicon Valley. No, I, I, abs- I absolutely agree with that. I mean, after, um, you know, we, we were talking about this before, before we started recording the podcast, we, we share a common background from McKinsey and I, I left McKinsey actually pretty recently. And, and run an organization about 80 people here in Atlanta. And, and I have to say that the, um, the, from my experience in Silicon Valley being a, you know, a venture-backed startup, the, the pins and needles of consistent looking around, I mean, just in our working space, and we weren't in a co-working space, we had 15 other startups, right? And so you're constantly yep. you know, in this kind of environment where you're, you're asking exactly the right, exactly those same questions as are going through your mind, which is this idea of if you have an up day or a bad day, you know, it was funny, we almost pared it down to the day where, you know, we'd have an update or we'd, you know, release something in the press um, and, and, and really had no kind of differentiation on the actual underlying business itself. But uh, morale was significantly higher, right? Or recruiting was significantly up. Yeah. Right? And you go through a difficult conversation with the customer or, you know, you lose a deal and you're talking about it at all hands and uh, you, you worry, right? Are, are people going to start looking elsewhere and looking out the door? A very, very different challenge, I think, of being in an environment, very many advantages, right? Of being in an environment that's so dominated by tech, right? From an ecosystem perspective, but many of those, you know, disadvantages of that same strength as well. Yeah. So when you guys were initially starting out, right? And, and I want to talk about kind of your, your early pivots because I think they're interesting stories. How did you test the viability of the idea? Talk a little bit more about those two pivots, you know, in your first couple of years. And, and, and really talk about the learning process and how you were able to find product market fit. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's interesting. You know, the, the mission of the company has never really changed, right? The idea was there is this new economy being generated, um, you know, with these online channels and marketplaces. And it's allowing people to become, you know, entrepreneurs that otherwise wouldn't have been able to. And access to capital was going to be the constraint. Um, and so we started at the micro micro. We started we started in the gig economy. We did a deal with Uber in the first like months of starting the company um, where we were funding Uber drivers to grow their business. Um, and we learned a lot. We helped Uber dr- design their driver side API. And we learned a lot building that. Um, one of the things we learned was Uber drivers are actually more time constrained than capital constrained in a lot of ways. You can't you know take extra money and, and drive you know extra cars. Um, and so. So the, their earning ability is really sort of, you know, time constrained um, and, and they, they don't necessarily they operate more like contractors than than, uh, than, than small businesses that could grow. Um, but frankly, if we hadn't started the, the business, you know, building the infrastructure to move money and underwrite, you know, automatically and uh, make decisions and fund, you know, decide to fund an Uber driver, you know, 20 or $50 at a time, we wouldn't be able to we wouldn't have had the, that that infrastructure to be able to make that same decision. Um, for an e-commerce company to fund them $10 million in 20 minutes, right? Um, and so a lot of those learnings were, uh, you know, have, have, have made their way into what we do today. Um, we also did some work in the uh, vacation rental industry with Airbnb and HomeAway and, um, you know, the, the, uh, the platforms there. And that was interesting because you could actually take capital. If you had a couple of properties you were running, you could take capital and, and open up a new one. Um, and you could actually, 
you know, you could build a business around it and become a property manager. And so that, that actually was, was quite promising. Um, I think the couple of things that we realized were um, those, you know, it's the data on those platforms. Part of it was the platforms are just newer. And so they didn't have clean data that we could use to, to find these businesses and underwrite them. Um, and it's not exactly as clean as spend an extra dollar today and, and generate, you know, new revenue tomorrow. Um, because you have to get, you know, get a new property, set it up, furnish it, you know, get the reviews, bring it online. It took some time. There was a bit of, of uh, you know, latency and lag time there. And then it took, um, and then, and then, uh, and then it was hard, you know, as we started to, to scale and saturate those, some of those markets, it was hard to find new customers in that space. They didn't, they didn't always want to be found because of regular, regulatory reasons and things. I still think it's an interesting space. We were just probably a few years early for it. So, um, you know, that may be another area where we go back to in a couple of years uh, as the space matures and the data, data matures. Um, but, you know, I think what ended up happening in both of those cases where we had a subset of customers that were Uber drivers and running Airbnbs, and we had a subset of Airbnb customers who were Airbnb, um, and then they were also, you know, running e-commerce stores. And uh, and we started, they started asking if they could use that money to, to, to buy ads for their e-commerce businesses. And, um, and that sort of led us to, to what we're doing today. But the mission has always been, you know, how do we help more entrepreneurs and more founders do what they want to do and, and work for themselves um, and, and own more of their business, right? And, and so... Uh, so the mission hasn't changed just sort of where we've pointed the product to and, and where we've seen success, uh, has evolved over time. And so in building that kind of business, especially with that type of mission, I mean, in, in any business, obviously culture, execution, operations are all important, but I think in, in a, in a business in which the mission is so founder centric, um, a lot of these lessons, I think around operational excellence, culture, hiring, et cetera, I'm, I'm sure are very internalized. So I, I want to turn to some of those, which is as you've built the company, what have been some of those, you know, unique practices you were, you were mentioning a little bit earlier or alluding to a little bit earlier? What have been some of those unique practices you've instilled as a company? I mean, one of the things I know about, and I'd love for you to talk about more, is Founder School. Um, I think it's a very, very interesting uh, initiative and, and very impactful, I'm sure. What have been some of those types of internal practices and, is, and initiatives that have been the most unique and have, and have had the biggest impact? Yeah, yeah. And look, I think um, one of the things we, we sat down and said was, what's the type of company that we would want to build and, and show up to every day? And, and what are the type of people? And if, if you can get the people right, and you get the way of working together right, you can build enough, you know, trust and foundations to have, you know, if people actually care about each other, believe that each other have, uh, you know, each other's best interests you know, and the mission in mind, and are capable of their job, then you can actually have you know, sometimes pretty high bandwidth, pretty high, pretty hard conversations because you've got that foundation of trust. People don't take those conversations too personally. Um, the ways that we do that. So founder school is an interesting thing. You know, it, it emerged because we looked at our company and we sort of said, look, what are the characteristics of our highest performers? And they were all founders, right? They were all people who had ambitions to be founders. They may have started companies in the past. Some of them have gone through accelerator programs. Um, some of them have started nonprofits in, in school. Um, or came from entrepreneurial families who moved to this country and then started their own businesses. But they had this idea that they are founders, you know, they want to be founders in the future. Um, and, and so we said, look, well, why don't we just embrace that? Uh, and, uh, and, you know, we talked about how do we give people the tools uh, to be, if our customers are all founders, how do we help them build that empathy faster? Right. And so we teach people concepts, financial concepts, but from a founder's perspective. Right. So instead of accounting you know, finance, it's like, what is dilution? What is burn rate? What is runway and CAC to LTV? And we sort of talk through you know, the financial concepts that our customers think through. 
Um, and the idea is you build up the skill set that you know our founders have. And so when you're on the phone with somebody, or when you're building product, or when you're you know analyzing the data of our customers and um, and building new underwriting models, uh, you're doing it with the founder's perspective in mind, and you really have that empathy. And uh, and that comes through. So when you talk to anybody you know in the organization, that that rings true. Um, it also means that. We, you know, we will lose some people and we've already had a handful of folks that have gone on and started their own business. And, you know, we sort of lean into that and, you know, and, and celebrate it the same way that, you know, McKinsey pitches you on, um, on, you know, come here for a period of time, but really you're joining McKinsey for what you're going to do next. Uh, and that's what got me was come here for two years and build something. You know, we pitch that same thing is come here for two years. You built, you know, maybe you find your co-founder here, maybe you start your own company, maybe we fund you. Um, and, uh, uh, or maybe you lead a function internally, but you're, you know, we want you to, to spend a few years here and, and have the skill sets of a founder and, and learn what that means. Um, so that's one of the things, you know, some of the other things we've done, we take our, our whole company on uh, a retreat twice a year. Um, it's getting more and more expensive. We just crossed 100 people and we'll be at over 200 by the next one in, in, uh, in January. But um, again, it's just, and we try and do it on uh, U.S. holidays that are not Canadian holidays, like the 4th of July and stuff, that, uh, so that we don't leave our customers hanging. But um, get away for a couple of days and really build sort of relationships. One of the things we do is we get everybody to tell their founder story, right? And we, you know, this summer we did one and everybody sat around a fire and talked about, you know, what they had built. Uh, one, one person built, you know, on our engineering team built a, uh, you know, Nintendo emulator that like half the company had used and played. And so all of a sudden you build this, this level of depth and empathy for people that otherwise you wouldn't have, uh, you wouldn't have gotten and, and a level of respect. And so... You know, when something breaks on the, the product, you're like, well, our engineers are really good because I know what they've done and I know what they've done before. And so I'm not, you know, I'm going to come in saying, hey, actually, they're, they're pretty good at what they do. And so uh, instead of just saying, oh, damn, they're like, you know, the product broke again. Um, and so I think that, you know, building that foundation and trust and celebrating that sort of founder ethos has been um, sort of through and through what, uh, what, we've really, uh, what we've really leaned into and focused. And it's, it's been a source of strength for us. You know, culturally. And so what are, what are some of the unique aspects you mentioned hiring earlier? And I want to get your perspective on it. What are, what are some of the unique practices and, and methodologies you've used to approach hiring, right? Obviously to build uh, a culture of high performers, there is a, there's of course the, you know, the structure, the, you know, the initiatives, everything that runs kind of after someone enters the door, right? But to make that effective, mm -hmm. you have to have the top end part of the funnel, uh, effective, right? Which is you have to get the right people in so that you can do those types of things so they actually have impact. So talk a little bit more about the former part of that process and how you think about hiring. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it is, um, you know, we have, we've invested a lot in our hiring brand and we've invested in channels that, um, you know, maybe haven't been as tapped because a big part of what we do is, you know, myself and Michelle and our executive team will go and give talks at, you know, at Techstars, right? And and at accelerator programs and things like that, because what we want to do is we want to build that foundation where we want our, if our mission is to see founders succeed, um, we want people who are aligned with that mission. And so we will get a lot of non-traditional people who haven't really had a job, um, right? They've started a company and maybe it hasn't gone well, or they've been thinking about it, but they haven't really known what to do. Um, haven't really, haven't really had a job or haven't really had a job that like they've loved, right? They've been in back office, corporate in some, you know, like large multinational um, or large accounting firm or consulting firm. Um, but they're just like, you can see that there's like a passion and drive to do something completely different inside them. Um, and so 
we try and find those people and, and draw that out of them. Um, and they hang out in the places where, uh, where founders do, right? And so that's really what we've, uh, what we've tried to do is build that brand from the top of the funnel. Uh, and then we have a, uh, a really world-class recruiting team that is able to tease that out of people and see that sort of spark. And so it's not really about, you know, what's on your resume um, and, and what, you know, your prior experiences. It's about sort of, do you have that right energy and that passion for what we're doing in our customers? Uh, one of the things we've done is we just said, look, you know, sure, send us a resume, but we also want you to give us an interview. So even our job descriptions are just videos of our us and the hiring managers talking about the job and then we want you to respond with like a one minute video and it can you know it doesn't need to be produced or whatever take a, a video of yourself on your phone talking about why you're excited about the job and uh and why you you know why you're excited about clearbank uh, and why you'd be a good fit and you can get so much out of that um where we just you can see uh you can see what motivates people and you can see where where they have the, the that energy from and we've taken bets on a lot of people um, who on paper would not have been a good fit, but, uh, but in a quick conversation, you can tell, um, are going to be, are going to be stars in their career and, and, uh, and it's working out really well. So, um, we're trying to build a reputation for that. And, and it's, it's easier to stand out in the, in the crowd in, in Toronto than I think it might've been in, in Silicon Valley. How have you continued to maintain your development and growth as the company has scaled, right? It's a, it's a materially different skill set, obviously, to found something um, and then, you know, to lead an organization as it continues to grow. I think there's obviously, if you think about it kind of in Venn diagram terms of a, a you know, a founder's founder versus, you know, pure play professional CEO, obviously the, the, the sweet spot is there in the middle where, you know, you've got, you know, the innovation, the, the inherent culture of the company as, as the founder, and then some of the toolkits, um, you know, and, and necessary skill sets of really developing an organization as it scales. Now, how do you think about your own, you know, your and Michelle's, right? How do you think, how did the two of you think about your own personal development in continuing to ensure you've got the right skill set, you know, to lead the company as it grows, as you were mentioning from, you know, a hundred to 200, so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's been hard. It's actually one of the things that I spend a lot of my time thinking about is how does my job change as, as we scale? Um, and, you know, there may be a time where I'm not the right person to kind of be the CEO and lead the company. Um, but what I try and do is just say, look, you know, we've, we've got now a, um, a, a fantastic executive team where every single person is, you know, leaps and bounds ahead of me in their functional area. Um, and so I sort of think about, okay, we get, we have the right people to lead all the functions and I can defer to them on almost every kind of functional decision. Um, and so my role is, you know, one, make sure that, that everybody is pointed in the right direction. And, and really, it's sort of like the keeper and amplifier of the culture in a lot of ways. Uh, and if we can continue to add people who, are, uh, who embody that, um, and we can kind of continue to define and refine, you know, um, our culture and values, then, um, then a lot of it solves itself. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I do is I just say, like, I, I just try and be pretty real. Uh, I just try to tell people why, why I show up every day um, and, and, uh, and encourage people to do the same. And, and, and that's one of the easiest ways to sort of, if you actually show up for good reasons every day, uh, it's, it's easy to be inspiring because, uh, because you just talk about it in a, in a pretty uh, frank and honest way. Uh, and so, you know, I've gotten uh, outside coaching. Um, so we, I have an executive coach. I also got our executive team outside coaches in their functional areas. And so, you know, I think one of the things that um, I've seen and I've, I've, as I've talked to and I've made these, this mistake earlier in my career is, 
you know, you get to a certain scale and you feel like you need to bring in people who have, uh, who look a certain way to lead certain functions. And I think, uh, and you just, you just succumb to this fact that your organization is going to look different. Um, and, and is going to lose a certain culture at a certain scale. And, and I just, you know, Michelle and I both sat down and said, look, we, we just kind of refuse to do that. We refuse to, for this to feel any different as we scale um, than it did. Uh, we want to see if we can continue to maintain that like tight family sort of like mission oriented, high energy organization that we had when we were 12 people in a condo or we were five people living in a house. Um, and so what is we've bet on, um, we've bet on early stage. I mean, people that are founders, we actually have made people, um, this is one of the other interesting things we did that, uh, I don't know why more companies don't do. Um, but we looked back and we said, look, there are co-founders and there are people that, you know, the people that were there from day one, but there's also people who have joined our company through this journey who, you know, have not like, maybe they joined a year in, maybe they joined two years in, but like the company, they have, they have made such an impact that we would look completely different without them. Um, and so Charlie, Ivan, Tanai have all joined and added such outsized impact. Tanai launched e-commerce for us. It was his idea. He's launched the entire, entire thing. He's our head of product. Uh, Charlie has had every role in the company and has helped us help save us from the brink of death with his, his insights many, many times. And he's our head of uh, business operations, strategy, and analytics. Um, and Ivan has raised basically all the capital uh, that we've ever deployed. Um, and he started in customer service and collections and finance, and now he leads capital markets and finance. Um, and they all joined, you know, between one and, you know, uh, one and two years into the company. Um, but we just gave them co-founder titles because we're just like, you know, they're, they're effectively co-founders. Um, and we've bet on folks like that and we've gotten them and they're all like in their, you know, mid, mid to late twenties. Um, but we got them outside coaching to continue to see them, see them, uh, grow and succeed and really bet on those folks and, um, bet that us having a, uh, a cohesive trusting executive team that scales together, um, you know, is better than dropping in people above them. Um, and if we can invest in, in, in helping them scale, then, then we think that's a stronger place to be. And we've brought in outside executives, you know, in sales and marketing and, um, and our general counsel as well. And, and they've just gelled really well. Um, and so I think that's one of the big things that, that we've, we've tried to do is just bet on people and give them all the resources. Uh, and, and that's what, what I've tried to do for myself is, you know, not, not pretend like I've got the answers and try and look for outside, uh, outside help and coaching when I can. It's interesting to hear, you know, kind of about the way that you've, you've thought about your own development and growth. Who, who are the leaders and organizations that you've taken inspiration from as you've built the business? You know, what's particularly stood about, stood out about them that you try to mirror? Yeah. So, um, so this is going to be an interesting one. Uh, um, I, uh, I, you know, not, not really any, any, um, any other tech organizations, but if you walk into ClearBank, we look like a, a weird mashup of uh, of Bridgewater and Lululemon, <laughs> right? And and the leaders, you know, Ray Dalio and Chip Wilson. Michelle and I spent some time. We re read both of their books. Uh, we know a lot of people that have worked in those organizations and are products of them. And it's interesting because you know, from a cultural perspective, um, you know, a lot of we take a lot of the principles around you know, being authentic to yourself and, and being able to be transparent and, and, uh, and have those hard conversations, but, but with a foundation of care um, that, uh, you know, we, we like a lot of what, uh, what Bridgewater, you know, and Dalio has preached um, and, and just, you know, the like 
focusing on reality and truth and and uh and being able to separate that from narratives and stories and uh and sort of conventional wisdom um, is a big part of how we make decisions and is a big part of our underlying models and um you know in terms of the the business model of a hedge fund uh you know we're just trying to look for for data and find find places that are um that are mispriced uh and then the Lululemon story is really, you know, we love the way that uh, that they built that organization um, to invest in people uh, and invest in, you know, they've got that entire sort of concept of these Supergirls and the the um, congruence between um, the customers and the employees, right? And this idea that you know our customers should be our employees uh, and there should be this fluidity between that, and that's what drives empathy. And we're really investing our in our employees to be able to go out and take you know, take outsized career steps um, and betting on them. Uh, and so it's, uh, so those are the two organizations that we've sort of like taken a lot from uh, and the two leaders that, that we followed a lot and, and have a lot of respect for. Um, we actually don't want to look like, I, you know, I spent a lot of time looking at different tech companies and how they operate. And, um, and there, I haven't come across one that I want to look like, um, but, uh, but, but, you know, Dimensions of of, uh, of Bridgewater and Lululemon are the ones that, that we've taken a lot of uh, of inspiration. As we round out the conversation, I want to ask you the, the Peter Thiel question as applied to company building, which is, what's one truth about building a company and scaling it you believe that very few people you think would agree with you on? Yeah, I think um, I think one of the things is uh, is this this concept of like measuring employee retention as like a success of culture. Mm. Um, you know, we are we don't, we don't, we don't really care about it. We, you know, 30 days into the company, uh, we have a conversation. We say, look, are you as excited about this job as you were before you started? Are we as excited about you as before you started? And it doesn't mean we like, it's not a performance conversation. It's not like we end things if you aren't as excited, but just like, let's talk about those reasons. Um, and, and if this isn't what you thought it was, or you're not who we thought you were, then maybe there's another role or whatever, but at least, you know, maybe there's some dimensions that are, that are different and we should get, we should address them. Um, and then we have this founder school concept where it's like, look, we expect you to spend a couple of years here and then, you know, either take on a leadership role or go start your own thing. And hopefully, you know, maybe you find a co-founder here and you start a company and we fund you. Um, but we, we want to invest in the alumni network, not, you know, not unlike the way that McKinsey thinks about it. Um, and so I think that's one of the things where, you know, a lot of people, organizations focus on, you know, employee morale and retention and all of that stuff. And I think that's just the wrong, um, you know, for us, that's 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 the wrong way to think about a successful organization and culture. Um, and it is about, and it's not even you know, it's about engagement. We want people to be here and be thinking about ClearBank. You know, they, they don't they don't need to be working twenty four seven, but we do need we want them to be thinking about their career and 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 our customers and how to how to help them win. You know, a lot of the time, like what do you think about in the shower, right? I think that's that that idea of um, you know, I'm really really engaged in what I do. Uh, and so that's one of the big things that we focus Andrew, on. Andrew, this has been a this has been an awesome conversation. Super insightful, and and really appreciated. Um, you know your insights and and the fact that you can make the time. So thanks, you know, thanks again for joining us and really enjoying yeah. having you on. I appreciate it.